For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi, and welcome to this podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. The name of this particular podcast is John the Revelator. He's the guy. It's a little bit of an unusual name for a podcast, and I'm going to explain that in just a moment. But I first want to introduce myself to you. I'm John Cassinet. I'll be your host on this and uh, hopefully many podcasts to come in the future. Now, some of you may not know that in my former life, when I was gainfully employed before my retirement, I was an attorney in Sacramento for many years. As an attorney, I understand the concept that whenever you put a dangerous article into the stream of commerce, you need to give a warning about the inherent dangers of the article that uh, consumers partake of. Now, I don't really think that my podcast is uh, an inherently dangerous item, but I only think it's fair to let you know that there are a couple of things about me that you need to know going in. First of all, I'm a bit of a storyteller, and so uh, as we're going along and I'm talking about matters of doctrine, things relating to the book of Revelation, uh, these stories just kind of jump out of nowhere, and uh, it's just something that I don't really have much control over, so I'm warning you that that could happen. And I also like movie quotes, and so once again, you're going to probably hear various uh, quotes coming out. I'll try and give you a little background on the uh, the movie that I'm quoting, but in our family, uh, it's always a little bit of a challenge to quote a movie and see if everybody can guess what movie it comes from. And <laughs> so somehow, uh, these things are likely to end up in uh, these podcasts and uh, to give you an illustration of uh, how this occurs I'm going to tell you a story right now that involves a movie quote so both problems right here in one fell swoop as we begin this uh, podcast so a number of years ago uh, I had the opportunities in uh, my ch various church callings to speak on many occasions in many different settings and uh, one day I was uh, walking through the chapel and an older sister in the ward came up to me and uh, kind of asked if I would be speaking in the sacrament meeting that day and I acknowledged that I would be and she said oh I just love your talks <laughs> and so you sit you're sitting here thinking to yourself oh here's a sister that uh, obviously has uh, felt the spirit and she's been uh, enlightened and uh, um, had the uh, spirit blessing her life as she's heard the uh, the talks given by the power of the spirit and then she adds I especially like your movie quotes <laughs> and she went on to tell me that essentially whenever I would quote a movie in any of my talks she would go get the movie and watch him and she thought that I had really good taste and uh, she appreciated that so you know kind of deflated the old ego a little bit that the uh, the best that can be said about my sacrament talks is that uh, I was the next best thing to uh, Siskel and Ebert uh, but at any rate uh, that's a little bit about me and uh, to begin this podcast now I'll explain a little bit about where the name comes from John the Revelator he's the guy um, that actually comes from uh, a movie called Night and Day with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. And the premise of the movie is that Tom Cruise is a guy in the CIA who's a, who's a good guy, but uh, he's been painted as a rogue agent who's trying to steal this uh, uh, battery that supposedly has the power to uh, power an atomic submarine for who knows how long. But at any rate, so he, they think he's the bad guy and uh, Cameron Diaz gets kind of wrapped up in him and uh, they end up uh, on an airplane together where there's shootings and killings and uh, Tom and Cameron end up as the only two people alive on the airplane which he then crashes in a field and and they walk away from it and uh, 
the next day, Cameron is trying to explain to her boyfriend Rodney in a little diner in Boston that uh, she was on the plane that had crashed the night before that he'd heard about on the news. And as she's trying to explain to Rodney what happened in her misadventure with Tom Cruise, Tom, who's Roy Miller in the movie, walks up, sits down at the booth, and is trying to explain to Cameron, who's June Havens, that June you're going to have to stay with me until we kind of get through this because the good guys seemingly who are after her, who are really the bad guys, um, are going to be trying to track her down and, and so they have to stick together. And as she's trying to explain to Rodney what had happened, Rodney begins to engage in a conversation with Roy Miller and uh, they're just chit-chatting, chit-chatting, while Cameron is sitting there kind of nodding her head in the direction of uh, Tom Cruise and trying to explain he's the guy. <laughs> that Tom Cruise, who's Roy Miller, is the guy that crashed the plane. And pretty soon, Rodney starts to kind of catch on, and he's looking over at June, and she's nodding and pointing, he's the guy, and uh, Rodney looks at uh, Roy and says, you're the guy? And Roy says, I'm the guy? <laughs> and pretty soon, it's this funny three-way conversation about, I'm the guy? He's the guy? You're the guy? And uh, so we get into this roundabout circle of Tom uh, Cruise being the guy who had crashed the plane. And, and I wanted to use that as an illustration of uh, the role of John the Revelator, because in a very real sense, when it comes to uh, the revelation of latter-day events and a description of the second coming of Jesus Christ, it is John the Revelator who's the guy. I mean, he's the guy. And so that's what the purpose of our discussion is today, is to talk about John the Revelator's role in revealing the conditions and terms and everything associated with the second coming of Jesus Christ, because he's the guy. And so we begin, first of all, with his name. He's known as John the Beloved, and he's the only apostle among Jesus's 12 original apostles who's named in the book of Reb in the book of Mormon and coincidentally he's actually named three times expressly so in three different places in the book of Revelation none of the other apostles are mentioned in the book of Revelation the closest thing we have is the apostle Peter um, but he's not really mentioned. It's just that we have a Peter Whitmer who's named as one of the eight witnesses to the Book of Mormon, and that's the closest we get to the names of any of the other apostles is Peter Whitmer as one of the eight witnesses, not even the same guy. But uh, at least there's one Peter. But John three times is mentioned. The first one is uh, a rather significant mention, and that we find in the... Uh, first book of Nephi in the 14th chapter, which I just want to talk a little bit about those verses because this really illustrates the point that John is the guy. And so what we have here in uh, first Nephi chapter 14 is a vision that Nephi is having about latter-day events. And so he's basically saying the same visionary images and the future history of this earth by an angel who's communicating to Nephi the same things that eventually will be communicated to John. But keep in mind that Nephi's vision is happening about 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. John, by contrast, had his visions about 96 years or pr approximately 100 years after the birth of Christ. So what we have here is Nephi describing what's going to happen in the life of John 700 years before the events occur. And so this is starting out here in uh, verse number uh, 20 and going through a few other verses. I'm going to skip a couple just to, to move things along. But we have the angel saying that he beheld a man and he was dressed in a white robe. And the angel said unto me, that is to me, Nephi, behold, one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now here we don't get John's name, but we will in a few minutes and after a few verses. He said, the angel, 
Behold, he shall see and write the remainder of these things, yea, and also many other things which have been, and he shall also write concerning the end of the world. So Nephi is seeing the same things through the assistance of this angel and is describing how the apostle of the Lamb is going to see the same things and how he will write them concerning the end of the world. And so I'm going to skip a couple of verses now down to verse 25, which says, But the things which thou shalt see hereafter, thou shalt not write, for the Lord God hath ordained the apostle of the Lamb of God that he should write them. So Nephi's being told specifically, you're seeing the same things that John is going to see roughly 700 years after this point in time, but he's the guy that is de designated to be the writer of those things and to incorporate them into scripture. And then Nephi says in verse 20, 27, and I, Nephi, heard and bear record that the name of the apostle of the Lamb was John, according to the word of the angel. And so here we have 600 years before the time of Christ, Nephi is being told that John's the guy. He's the guy that's going to write the apocalypse and write concerning the end of the world that will be scripture to the world. And then in verse 28, he says, And behold, I, Nephi, am forbidden that I should write the remainder of the things which I saw and heard. Wherefore, the things which I have written sufficeth me, and I have written but a small part of the things which I saw. And so we learn from this experience that 600 years before the time of Christ, John was obviously foreordained to be the apostle of Jesus Christ who would be designated to write the apocalypse and the history of the end of the world. And Nephi was specifically forbidden from doing so, which means that John's the guy. And you can just imagine, or at least I imagine, maybe you don't, but I, I think of this vision, it's gonna be another 600 years plus before John is actually born uh, but he's up in the premortal existence. He has his premortal spirit, and he's hanging out with probably the other future apostles of Jesus Christ. And uh, maybe they all know uh, what their role is going to be, and uh, have made it's been made known unto them what their responsibilities and mortality would be. And I can, I can just see uh, the apostle Peter. <laughs> If you can picture this, coming over to John in the premortal existence and saying, "Hey, I, I don't mean to put any pressure on you, but uh, you're the guy." <laughs> and John is going to be sitting there saying back to Peter, "I'm the guy," and maybe uh, James adds in, "You're the guy." <laughs> so that's the uh, the premortal. We're all sitting. They're all sitting in a diner in the premortal existence, having this three-way conversation about the fact that uh, John the Beloved is the guy. You're the guy? He's the guy? So that's how it's going to go down and probably did come down in the pre-mortal existence. I guess I shouldn't say probably. <laughs> that's just an, an image that I have of, uh, of how things were going in the pre-mortal existence when it was learned that uh, John the Revelator was foreordained to be the guy, and not just the guy, the only guy that would be allowed to write the visions concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end of the world. And so that's the first mention of John in the uh, Book of Mormon. The second time that John is mentioned by name in the Book of Mormon comes from Jesus himself when he made his appearance to the Nephites after his resurrection. And in 3 Nephi chapter 28, verse 6, this is Jesus speaking to the survivors of the uh, great calamities in the, uh, on the American continent. And he's uh, talking to uh, the uh, Nephite disciples that he had called and the fact that three of them had a desire to remain upon the earth and continue their ministries in order, essentially, they were requesting that uh, they be translated. And Jesus told them, uh, Behold, I know your thoughts, and ye have desired the things which John, my beloved, who was with me in my ministry before that I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. I find this verse to be 
kind of interesting because, you know, John in his uh, gospel, he never refers to himself by name. He's always talking about himself in the third person. You know, he's always saying uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved or the other disciple or uh, the one he loved, these kinds of things. And here it's kind of confirmed by the Savior that, in fact, uh, John was apparently a favorite of the Savior because the Savior specifically refers to him as John my beloved. So this wasn't a name apparently that John just sort of kind of assumed just because he had a close relationship of the Savior. The, the Savior apparently uh, made it pretty well known that uh, John was his beloved. And so there's the second mention you have of John in the uh, the Book of Mormon. The third occasion on which John's name is specifically given in the Book of Mormon is found in Ether chapter 4 verse 16. Now just to give you a little context about this particular reference, here in Ether we essentially have the uh, prophet Moroni were now roughly 400 years after the time of Christ and 300 years since the time of John's revelation on the island of Patmos. And, but this is Moroni basically writing uh, this vision that he's having of uh, what's going to happen with John's writing. In other words, the book of Revelation and how it's going to come forth in the latter days. And so uh, keep in mind that this is at the beginning of the book of Ether before Moroni starts translating the 24 gold plates that contained the record of the Jaredite nation and their ultimate destruction. Um, and so he's uh, getting ready to do that, but before he does, he's describing the revelations that John would write and how they would come forth in the last days. And so this is what he says. He says, And then shall my revelations, which I have caused to be written by my servant John, be unfolded in the eyes of all the people. Remember, when ye see these things, ye shall know that the time is at hand, that they shall be made manifest in very deed. And so that's the third occasion is Moroni in roughly about 400, 420 BC AD, describing by name John, and now identifying the book of Revelation that will come forth in the latter days, which is kind of an interesting prophecy if you stop and think about it, because the uh, the revelation was given in 96 uh, AD, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit because the next podcast that uh, you'll have an occasion to uh, listen to will talk about the actual date. So, spoiler alert, I've already given you the answer when it's written, but uh, you have this prophecy that's written by John in 96 AD in the form of letters that are sent out to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And so it was being circulated uh, near the turn of the first century AD, eventually makes its way into the Bible canon uh, that we've had for hundreds of years. And yet the prophecy in Ether 4.16 is that uh, the revelations which I have caused to be written by my servant John will be unfolded in the eyes of all the people in the latter days. And so, in another podcast, I'm going to talk about the, the all of the symbolism and everything associated with the book of Revelation and how it's very, very difficult to understand what John's meaning was when he even wrote the re Revelation. But here we have a prophecy of how the Revelation would be unfolded in the latter days. And I like to think that uh, perhaps maybe... Uh, what I have done in my 14-year study of the book of Revelation may play some eensy-weensy little part uh, of that. Uh, I'm not the only person that uh, is talking about the book of Revelation, um, but uh, I think this is the time uh, when the Lord prophesied that the meaning of the book of Revelation was going to be known to the people. And so that's, uh, that's a, a fairly significant prophecy that you'll probably... <laughs> hear me talk about that a little bit more because it's rather significant in the context of our study of the book of Revelation in general. And so uh, those are the three mentions that we have of John the Revelator in the Book of Mormon. Nobody else even uh, comes close to that and that's why we can conclude that John truly is the guy. 
His name is, uh, in addition to being John the Beloved, he was also known as a son of thunder, which in uh, the Greek language is Bonerges. That's what the Savior uh, called them. It could be an Aramaic name, but uh, he was, John and James were both given this name as the sons of thunder probably based on an incident that occurred when Jesus was passing through Samaria and some of the uh, Samaritans began to revile Jesus and uh, the solution to this problem and to this affront to the Savior by James and John was to call down fire. <laughs> <laughs> to call down fire on the village. So they had a little bit of a fiery temperament, and so that's how they got this name, the Sons of Thunder. You, you can just imagine, uh, if we want to put this into a modern context, you're driving down the road, and uh, somebody with a little bit of road rage kind of, you know, does something on the road, and you get mad at them, and, uh, you know, what do you want to do? Well, let's call down fire on this this person that just cut me off. Uh, that's kind of the uh, sense of what I see happening when they were traveling on the road through uh, the land of uh, Samaria. Uh, but that was gives you a little sense of the disposition. John was someone who was obviously filled with the Spirit. You can tell that from his writings, both in his Gospel, in his three epistles that he wrote, and in the book of Revelation itself. And yet he is a guy that uh, had a little bit of a temper on him as well. And uh, and I like that. Uh, you know, we, we sometimes have these images of these apostles and uh, their dispositions, but uh, you kind of see a, another side of them. They, they certainly are human beings, uh, just like the rest of them. And uh, John's uh, Hebrew name, uh, means Jehovah is gracious or he that is favored of God. So that's a little bit about the nature of his name. Um, I've talked already a little bit about uh, his foreordination to be the only person authorized to uh, write the apocalypse that would be made known according to the prophecies in Ether chapter 4 verse 16 uh, in the latter days even though we've had it and it's been around for hundreds of years it's something that uh, is to come forth in the latter days and if we go to the book of Revelation itself <clears throat> and look at uh, the prophecies concerning the book of Revelation in chapter 22 verse 10 which is in the epilogue meaning the last chapter of the book of Revelation uh, it says this that an angel is speaking unto John and he said unto me seal not the sayings of the prophecy in this book for the time is at hand and I think that that fits pretty closely with the prophecy that Moroni made in the book of Ether uh, in terms of it being the time at hand and how in the future uh, there would be this unveiling of the content and meaning of the book of Revelation in our time. And so this is a book that was specifically designated to be unsealed and you contrast that with other books we've talked about uh, Nephi already and how his book was essentially sealed because he was specifically told don't write this stuff down but we also have that with Daniel where Daniel had uh, certain visions but he was told specifically to seal them up the brother of Jared is another example of uh, what he saw when he had his vision of the Savior and was told that uh, he couldn't write everything that he saw and ultimately you have Moroni who seals these records um, in the Hill Cumorah, but uh, the ultimate purpose was that they would be revealed at a, at a future date. And we also have the sealed portion of the book of Revelation as well. So we have all these kind of sealed records, but this is one of those rare occasions when the Lord specifically tells uh, John to unseal the content in his book of Revelation. Now, in order for John to uh, fulfill his foreordained calling to be the only person to write the apocalypse or the end of the world, um, he had to be born in certain family connections in a certain time that would allow him to fulfill this sacred mission. And so John was born in a town called Bethsaida in the northern part of Galilee, uh, along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee specifically. 
The, the name Bethsaida means in Hebrew, the house of fish or the house of the hunter, uh, which is kind of interesting because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Beth meaning house, Lehem meaning bread. And so what you have by Jesus being born in Bethlehem, you have the house of bread being matched with John from Bethsaida, the house of fish, or what I see is this kind of loaves and fishes kind of thing. And so when we had the miracle of the 5,000 where the young lad had uh, just uh, the uh, the loaves and the fishes that could be divided up among the people, you have the same kind of imagery from the, the hometowns from where John and Jesus came from, bread and fish. Um, now, in addition to that slight connection, which is just probably more irony than anything, uh, it is probably a fact that uh, John and Jesus were probably first cousins. So let me explain how that connection is made. It's not certain, 100%, that, uh, that they were first cousins, but I tend to believe, based on other circumstances besides just the names of the people involved, that John probably was um, a uh, first cousin of the Savior. So John's mother uh, was named Salome or Salome and uh, she had a sister by the name of Mary. Th those are not the facts that are known. The issue is well is it the same Mary who was also the, the mother of Jesus because if Salome uh, and her sister Mary, who would, was the mother of the Savior, then uh, that would then make John and Jesus first cousins. And so uh, I, I tend to think, uh, in addition to the names, there are circumstances going on in the lives of the people that suggest that that probably was true. Uh, for example, Salome traveled with and supported Jesus in his ministry. So she was one of the women that traveled with him. Um, this also gave aid to her sons, James and John, who were called to be uh, disciples and ultimately apostles of the Savior, Jesus Christ. But think about this. If there was no familial relationship between Salome supporting her nephew Jesus, wouldn't it be wouldn't James and John feel a little bit strange that their mother was kind of tagging along? Tagging along. It's like going off to college and your parents go with you, right? Um, and so I tend to think that uh, if the familial relationship did not exist with Jesus, I'm not sure that Salome would have traveled with the group in the way that she did. In addition, keep in mind that it was Salome who brought spices to anoint the body of Jesus on the Sunday morning of his resurrection. Of course, by the time she got there, he had already been resurrected, so there wasn't much that she could do. But the fact that she was going to anoint the body of Jesus um, suggests a very, very close relationship that was more than just the fact that her sons happened to be his disciples. Another event in the life of uh, Salome came on the night of the Passover uh, on that Thursday night before Jesus was crucified. Now with that Passover meal, as recorded in the 20th chapter of Matthew, there was this contention about who would be greatest in the kingdom, and James and John were kind of taking the position that uh, they would be numbered among the greatest in the kingdom. This must have been pretty offensive to Peter, <laughs> who was there and involved in the, uh, the contention as well. But you have to ask yourself, if James and John did not have uh, a familiar relationship with the Savior, you have to believe that they probably would not have been making this argument that uh, they were some, supposed to have some type of preeminence in the kingdom of God. Now, after this contention had occurred, Salome, the mother of James and John, then appeals to Jesus on behalf of her sons uh, in terms of precedence in the kingdom and making sure that uh, there was going to be a place for them in his kingdom. And again, I have to believe, uh, particularly given the Jewish culture and society and the place of women, uh, that, uh, you know, quite a bit different than uh, in today's world, uh, I'm not sure she would have approached Jesus 
to advocate on behalf of her sons if it weren't for the fact that Jesus was also her nephew. That made it pretty logical that uh, she would go ahead and make that kind of importuning on behalf of her sons, whereas if the relationship didn't exist, I'm not sure she would have done that. So that's why I tend to believe that probably uh, Jesus and John were first cousins through uh, their mothers, Mary and Salome, who would have been sisters. Now, Salome was married to uh, the father of James and John, and his name was Zebedee. Now, Zebedee uh, owned a thriving fishing business, um, probably located uh, in Capernaum, which would have been on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Peter and Andrew, who were also brothers, were also partners in the same fishing business. There's some uh, tradition authority, if you will, uh, through the Christ writings of the Christian fathers that uh, Peter and Andrew were orphaned at a young age and uh, Zebedee kind of took them under his wing and, and sort of made them his de facto sons. But uh, we don't know about that for sure. But uh, one thing is certain is that Peter and Andrew were partners in the same fishing business. And the reason we have reason to believe that it was a fairly wealthy enterprise was because uh, Zebedee was wealthy enough that he was able to hire servants who were part of the fishing business. And so uh, at the time that Jesus came and ultimately invited the uh, apostles Peter and James um, and John and Andrew to be fishers of men, uh, it was a pretty great sacrifice that they were making because they were leaving uh, this successful fishing business. So it's not like they didn't have anything better to do or they did it without some type of sacrifice. And it was also clear that at the time that the Savior invited them to be fishers of men, it was understood that they would have to give up their fishing business. And so uh, it's a fairly significant uh, thing to know that uh, this was the mindset of these disciples very early in their ministry. Now, given the fact that they were involved in a, a successful fishing business that would have kept them pretty much busy on a full-time basis, it was also probably impractical for John and the others to be formally educated at rabbinical schools, and that was kind of an important thing. Uh, you'll recall that uh, Paul, whose name was originally Saul, was uh, educated at a, at a famous rabbinical school led by Gamaliel, and so people would kind of recognize your stature based on the type of, if I can call it a finishing school, uh, that they went to. So they would have had their kind of their high school education uh, that all Jews would get, but uh, the rabbinical schools would have been like the university and these disciples uh, because of their involvement in the fishing business probably were not educated. We know that because later on after the death of the Savior as the apostles would go forth and they would teach uh, a, a, before certain bodies of uh, government officials and in certain places. Um, they were criticized um, because of their lack of education and also the fact that they spoke uh, a dialect that everybody could kind of recognize that, oh, who are these guys? They're just a bunch of Galileans that don't know anything. And so it, it's kind of interesting because the Galilee, the area where the disciples were from, 11 of them at least, uh, the only person who was not was Judas. He was a Judean by birth. But a person from Judea could tell uh, that a person was from Galilee basically because of the dialect. And it's the same kind of thing here in the United States where you can kind of tell where somebody comes from the South because they tend to have that Texas or that Southern drawl. And uh, I can even tell some differences where I grew up in Wyoming um, and the kind of pronunciation of certain words that are used versus when I moved out to California to finish my legal education and then stayed out there for about 30 years because in Wyoming, <clears throat> I my grandfather had his ranch on Spring Creek Road. Well, a creek in Wyoming is called a creek in California. And uh, in Wyoming, you have coyotes but in California, you have coyotes. 
<laughs> so you have these kind of words that you can tell, and it's kind of funny because ironically enough, um, I lived in a city, it was called Elk Grove, but the portion in which I lived and had my practice was in Laguna Creek. And sometimes I would, people would ask me, so where are you from? Where do you have your office? Oh, I'm down in Laguna Creek. <laughs> so I would pronounce it the Wyoming way, and they kind of look at me and say, huh? And I'd ask, oh, oh, I mean Laguna Creek. So at any rate, so that's what was happening with the disciples. They were kind of, uh, you know, disclosed that they were from Galilee because of their dialects. And uh, they were accused of being unlearned because they didn't uh, attend any formal rabbinical schools. So that's a little bit about uh, John's family connections and some of his education. Let's now talk a little bit about how John met the Savior for the first time. It's generally believed that that occurred at the time of uh, Christ's baptism. Prior to this, John would have been a disciple of John the Baptist and also his friend and partner in the business, Andrew. Now it's quite possible that uh, James and Peter were also disciples of uh, John the Baptist, but that's not as certain that that was true. We, we do know that John um, and Andrew were disciples of the Baptist, and coincidentally the Baptist was also a first cousin of Jesus. So you have all of these interconnections between these people to carry out the purposes of God. He kind of designates when people are going to come to the earth. He makes these earthly appointments that are not haphazard, they're not coincidental, they're not just a matter of chance. They are calculated, uh, I'm sure, to the nth degree, making sure that everybody is in place for uh, the coming of the Lamb and ultimately carrying out the uh, plan of salvation, which is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And so all of these people are part of that. And uh, so on this occasion, as uh, John the Baptist sees the Savior approaching for what will become the Savior's baptism, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. And when that statement was spoken, it was probably being spoken to Andrew and John. Now, we think, well, if Jesus and John were uh, first cousins, surely they must have known each other. But if you're thinking that, you're thinking like, oh, these guys would have had Instagram. They would have had uh, Facebook <laughs> and all these so social media. They could post their pictures. Oh, here's what I'm up to these days. You know, that wasn't how it worked back in the day. And uh, even if they only, Jesus was from Nazareth, uh, the disciples, uh, James and John, Peter and Andrew, would have been over on, on the uh, Capernaum area. Uh, it's, it's only 25, 30, maybe 40 miles away. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good distance just to, uh, to go and, and spend time traversing and going back and forth. So it's entirely possible that uh, even though John and uh, the Savior were first cousins, they, they did not know each other personally. Um, and if they did, it would have been only in passing. And uh, so when John the Baptist declares, Behold the Lamb of God, it's not like John said, Hey, I know that guy. Um, and so uh, essentially after the baptism of the Savior, the four of them, that is Peter and Andrew, and then James and John traveled with the Savior for a short time, mostly just listening to his teachings and uh, gaining their testimonies about his divinity and uh, who he was. It may have been in this short interval of time after the baptism that uh, they attended the marriage feast at Cana, which is recorded in the second chapter of John. And uh, after that, though, <clears throat> there was a period of time where they basically went back to being fishermen and went back to their old occupations. But after a few months at most, the Savior then came to the Sea of Galilee. And as uh, they were either in their boats fishing just off the shore a little bit, or were mending their nets, then the Savior invited the four of them to be fishers of men. Must have been a, a, a fateful day for Zebedee <laughs> to see his whole crew and his partners and his sons just 
up and, and leave him. And uh, that, I think, designates uh, a pretty good uh, character that Zebedee would just let them all go and knowing that that's what they needed to do. And so we just know that they immediately left their nets and uh, from that time forth they remained the constant companions of the Savior throughout his uh, mortal ministry. Now, one other little thing about the uh, about John is he probably <clears throat> was the youngest of Christ's original 12 apostles. And you can kind of gather that uh, the fact that if he was Jesus's nephew, which I think he was, it was kind of natural that uh, he would take him under his wing, um, not only because of the familial relationship, but also because John was the youngest, and that kind of made him a little bit of a favorite, and why he perhaps became known as uh, John the Beloved. Even though he was the youngest probably among the disciples, he was also called to be in the inner circle of apostles with Peter and James. And by this I mean to say that John was present on certain occasions in the ministry of Jesus that none of the other apostles were privy to. This occurred, for example, at the raising of the daughter of Jairus from the dead. Uh, at the time of the Mount of uh, Transfiguration, and also in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus went a little bit further with the three apostles of the inner circle where they could be witnesses to uh, his uh, atonement. So uh, that's uh, what I mean to say by the fact that he was in that inner circle. It was also at Gethsemane, of course, that uh, Jesus was arrested after the betrayal by Judas Iscariot. And we know that uh, at the time of the arrest, the uh, apostles kind of separated and went their different uh, directions in order to be uh, coming arrested as well as followers of the, the Savior. However, the scriptures record that John followed some distance from the uh, party of uh, Romans and uh, the Jewish leaders who had uh, arrested him and taken him to the uh, palace. Now John gained access to the palace at the time of the arrest and this was probably because he was personally acquainted with Joseph Caiaphas the Jewish high priest at the time. Now this relationship probably occurred when John was in his younger years and not sometime after he became an apostle. So once John became an apostle there's no way that he would continue to have this kind of friendly relationship with the Jewish high priest. But because he already had an established relationship once Jesus was brought to the palace of Caiaphas uh, he was able to speak to a woman at the door to get himself admitted, and then he also got Peter admitted. Now, you recall that the Savior had predicted that Peter was going to deny the Savior three times, and this occurred in the courtyard of the palace, and it only happened because John was able to talk to the woman at the door to get Peter admitted, where there were others sitting around and, and ultimately recognized him. Peter was stuck out in the courtyard. However, John himself was actually able to gain admittance because of his connection to Caiaphas into the chamber where the illegal trial was held before the Sanhedrin. Now, you know, as a lawyer, I got to take a few minutes and just talk about just a few of the illegalities that occurred in connection with this trial that was held by the Sanhedrin. First of all, the trial was occurring in the middle of the night and that was uh, expressly forbidden by Jewish law and so uh, they didn't have back in those days the old uh, night court that was a TV series on TV for a while <laughs> so no night court uh, TV series back in the Jewish days because the night courts were illegal now when Jesus first got to uh, the palace he was initially questioned by Annas 
Now, Annas was the father-in-law of Joseph Caiaphas. So Caiaphas married the daughter of Annas. Annas was actually the high priest that the Jews kind of recognized as being the, the true high priest. But the reality was, at the time of the saviors, the position of high priest was basically a political appointee of the Romans. And so at some point in time, the Romans decided they didn't want Annas to be the high priest anymore, even though under Jewish law and tradition, it was a position for life. And so if the Jews had been in control, Annas would have still been the high priest, but instead he, he kind of got ousted. But the reality of it is, because of his close connection to, uh, to Caiaphas, Annas was still kind of pulling the strings as his father-in-law. And I'm not going to say that Caiaphas was a puppet, but uh, Annas was really the guy who uh, had an extreme amount of pressure, uh, uh, or power, in terms of uh, his control in, of the uh, Jewish high priest. So when Annas questioned Jesus, that was illegal. After Annas got done with his questions, Caiaphas questioned him. That was illegal uh, because they, they had something similar to what we have in our Fifth Amendment rights, that you can't be a witness against himself. And so you can't question them. you got to sort of read them their Miranda rights uh, under Jewish law. And uh, they, of course, ignored all that. Jesus was accused um, without really being told what the nature of the charge was because this was basically an arrest that was in search of some type of criminal violation and so they're coming up with all these kinds of things and of course what they were really looking to do was to convict him of blasphemy which they could do only if Jesus claimed himself to be the Son of God or to try and attribute to himself some godly characteristics, which he could never commit blasphemy, of course, because anything he said about himself as the Son of God um, or his uh, godlike qualities and godhood, if he acknowledged that he was all these things, it could never be blasphemy because they're true. That said, for them, uh, as his accusers, they they didn't accept that anyway so as far as they were concerned he would be speaking truth but it would all be blasphemy because they wouldn't accept it as such so that was also a problem now eventually he was convicted of blasphemy even though they didn't have the required two witnesses in order to convict him of that and in fact they really had no witnesses and they're kind of shopping around to people who were in attendance at the trial trying to figure out what he said and finally some guy well you know he said that uh, destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to uh, raise it up again and they say no no that's that is not going to work as a charge of blasphemy we got to come up with something else and so that's when Caiaphas basically confronts the G Jesus and tell and and adjures him to tell him whether he be the son of God and Jesus basically said thou hast said and that was sufficient and no two witnesses it really was not even an express confession it was more like well that's what you're saying uh, and so based on that Jesus was convicted of blasphemy and finally the, the last item there there were probably some other things that if we spent some more time we could probably dig into them but the other problem with the illegality of the trial was that the Sanhedrin voted unanimously to convict Jesus of blasphemy. And that under Jewish law was also illegal. And so the verdict would have to be thrown out because the fact that you have unanimity means that essentially Jesus didn't have a friend in the proceedings. If you had at least one dissenting vote then essentially it would give the sense of some fairness in the proceedings because at least one person voted for non-conviction and in this case it was unanimous and so you have to ask yourself i mean come on guys you know people are going to be looking at this why didn't you all just get together and decide okay i want you to vote no just so we have this uh, sense of being fair but they didn't even do that. They just they just convicted, and and they just wanted him uh, to be uh, killed. And so that's kind of the way that the uh, trial went down. Now the last thing I just want to say before we pass on this and uh, the role of Caiaphas in the uh, 
conviction of Jesus is <clears throat> it was only about a week, perhaps two weeks at the outside before this trial was held on the night before Jesus would be crucified that Caiaphas comes into play at the raising of Lazarus. So we're all familiar with that miracle where Jesus goes to Bethany, raises Lazarus from the dead, and everybody was kind of watching and waiting for that, including the Jewish leadership, uh, Caiaphas included. And so they were all kind of waiting for Jesus <clears throat> to show up. And when he finally does and raises Lazarus from the dead, it was Caiaphas that then predicted, almost prophetically, that someone must die to save the nation. And so that was the time when they decided, hey, this Jesus, he's got to go because he's going to completely uh, turn the whole political situation on its head because everyone is going to accept him as the prophesied Messiah. And if we don't stop him, he's going to just disrupt the whole nation, both on a political level and on a spiritual level. And they, of course, were thinking more of themselves and the, uh, being the spiritual leaders. If Jesus comes into the picture and really begins to, uh, to take front stage, um, we basically are going to be out of a job. And so Caiaphas predicted that someone would have to die. He was, of course, speaking of the Savior and uh, the fact that it is better if you go back to the old uh, Book of Mormon and uh, the, what we call the Laban principle, uh, where, and so I'm going to back up just a little bit to make sure you understand what I'm talking about. You'll remember when <clears throat> Nephi and his brothers were sent back by their father to get the, the brass plates that were in the custodial uh, closet of uh, Laban. And so they were trying to get the plates, and uh, Nephi went back into the city alone, found uh, that Laban had been out uh, with his drinking buddies, and uh, was prompted to take his life. And uh, of course, Nephi kind of shrunk away from the responsibility, didn't want to do it, and uh, the angel basically persuades him, saying, it is better that one man should die than that a whole nation should uh, dwindle it should perish and, and dwindle in unbelief and so then Nephi took the uh, the life of Laban and we refer to that as the Laban principle and so you see the similarities between what Caiaphas was predicting at the time of uh, the miracle of raising Lazarus when he said someone was must die to save the nation it's a the Laban principle turned on its head basically because uh, Caiaphas was referring to uh, killing the Savior to save their political positions to save their spiritual positions and not really to save the nation and uh, but there's this kind of crossover that I find uh, rather intriguing and uh, interesting and so uh, that's a, a little bit of the last thing I want to talk about in terms of Caiaphas we move now from the illegal trial to uh, John's connection to uh, Jesus being crucified, uh, we, we don't have any information that any of the apostles or disciples, well, there were some disciples there, but not the apostles, other than John. We know that John was there. He was standing next to uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, in a what I think is one of the most touching situations in all of Scripture, where you can just imagine you have Mary, the mother of Jesus, standing at his feet as he's hanging on the cross. Uh, other women were there, including Salome. And we have John standing next to Mary. And so as uh, Jesus, in his final moments of his life, looks down from the cross, seeing his mother, says, Woman, behold thy son. And then the next statement that Jesus makes is directed to John. And so you just have to kind of picture this image of Jesus just having spoken to his mother. He then just kind of turns his head slightly in the direction of John and says, Behold thy mother. Now, what that basically means is that John, from that time, became the, uh, the custodian, if you will, or caregiver for Jesus' mother. 
And so we learned that from that time, he took Mary to his residence. John had a house in Jerusalem and later had a house at Ephesus. It might be that he actually had two residences, although the general uh, traditional view is that Mary remained with John at Jerusalem and then subsequently in Ephesus until her death in about 48 AD. And in Ephesus today, they have a place where tourists can go, and uh, this is the place where Mary was buried, and whether it was or not, I don't know. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of tourists who tend to think that that's the place. So, uh, but it's just a very, very tender moment, which is somewhat uh, unusual, if not unprecedented that Jesus would put the care of his mother into the hands of this uh, beloved disciple because uh, Mary had other sons, uh, at least four half-brothers and at least uh, one daughter who would have been a half-sibling of Jesus, and they were then living. Um, But uh, I think probably the Savior uh, put Mary into the care of John was because uh, as of that point in time, Jesus's brothers and half-siblings didn't believe in him as the Son of God. That came later. They they came to believe that, in fact, he was, and uh, later joined the church, and James, his half-brother, was became an apostle uh, later on. But for now, uh, Jesus entrusted the care of his mother into the hands of this uh, disciple whom he loved. Then after uh, Christ's death, of course, John served in the uh, first presidency of the ancient church with uh, Peter and James. He was one of the three who was a restorer of the priesthood and apostolic keys to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in uh, 1829. And so he continued his role as a translated being um, even into the modern era. Uh, John was uh, probably and certainly would have had to have been the last living apostle to minister among the ancient saints. Uh, And even he lived through some deadly persecutions, including attempts on his life. Uh, He survived these threats principally because the Savior had promised John that he would tarry, meaning he was translated so that he could not die a mortal death for the purpose of becoming a flaming fire and ministering angel until Christ's second coming. And we learned something about uh, John's ministry as a translated person in the uh, 10th chapter of the book of Revelation where he was given this little book mission uh, that he would serve among the lost 10 tribes of Israel. So we'll, we'll have a chance to talk about that uh, later on after we've uh, gotten through 10 chapters of other information. John was banished to the uh, island of Patmos where he received the revelation. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit more uh, at a later time. Now given the fact that John had a translated body, we can say with some certainty that he truly was divine when he wrote the book of Revelation. So if you look in our King James Version of the Bible now, you'll see that it has this appellation that says the book of Revelation of St. John the Divine. Now that appellation was added probably no later than the 12th century, but at the time that it was added, it, it probably is not a commentary on John's condition as a translated person, rather the word divine in its t- in the title to the book of Revelation basically means a theologian, a revelator, one who foresees. And so John was both a seer and a revelator because he was able to see future events through uh, divine means. Now the the last thing that I'll kind of conclude with is a discussion of uh, the book of Revelation and uh, the language in which it was written. I think everyone's generally in agreement that it was written in the Greek language, although some uh, scholars think that John didn't actually know Greek and that he spoke rough Aramaic. Um, And that may have well been true uh, when he was a young apostle of the Savior and the Savior was still alive. But I would think given the passage of almost 60 years in John's ministry in the uh, Greek-speaking community all the way from uh, Judea, through the, throughout the Roman Empire, including Asia Minor, I suspect somewhere along the line he picked up his uh, knowledge of the Greek language, and uh, so he probably did speak Greek, and the uh, 
um, Revelation was uh, written in the Greek language, there are approximately 5,300 and some odd Greek manuscripts of the Bible. And of all these Greek manuscripts, there are 34 of them that are actually complete, including the book of Revelation in the Greek language. Three of these are in very good condition, are given the most uh, credence among uh, biblical scholars, and these three were uh, actually dated back to the time of uh, the fourth century AD, and they were composed in Egypt. So we don't really have any of the original manuscripts. We certainly don't have the uh, the book with seven seals that John wrote, which was actually a scroll. We don't have that, um, but we have from those original source documents, these manuscripts written um, some of the earliest in the, the fourth century in terms of their, their completeness. So in all likelihood, the, um, the book of uh, Revelation was uh, composed by John in the uh, Greek language as he was foreordained to do because uh, he really is the guy and uh, he, it was his ministry to which he was foreordained to bring forth the uh, images and symbolism by which there would be this unveiling of Jesus Christ in these the latter days. And as we continue with our discussion about uh, John and the book of Revelation, I think you'll come to find that it, despite the difficulty that sometimes follows from the various images that you will come to see that John is the guy charged to unveil Jesus Christ in these last days. And uh, I look forward to uh, spending time with you as that unveiling occurs. I'll see you next week.